Welcome to Medicine the Truth, one of the four weekly podcasts in our Fixing Healthcare series. I'm Jeremy Core, host of the Popular New Books and Medicine podcast and CEO of Executive Podcast Solutions. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert led the Permanente Group, the nation's largest physician group. He's a healthcare contributor at Forbes.com, a best-selling author, and a professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business. His book, Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients, continues to receive industry-wide praise. All profits will be donated to Doctors Without Borders. Information on a broad range of medical topics can be found at his website, robertperlmd.com. Robbie, listeners are enjoying this blend of the latest in medicine combined with ongoing updates on COVID-19. What's new in each? Jeremy, the biggest news in medicine comes from federal government actuaries. They've calculated that U.S. healthcare costs are likely to rise from the current $4.2 trillion a year to over $7 trillion by 2031. And on average, for this year and the next seven, the cost of medical care is projected to rise significantly more rapidly than general inflation. This year, healthcare costs are projected to increase by 7.7%. And assuming these actuarial calculations are accurate, the result will be that healthcare in 2031 will account for 19.6% of the gross domestic product. That means that almost one in five dollars that Americans spend on everything, and we mean housing, food, education, defense, public safety, transportation, retail goods, will go to the healthcare industry. This report makes multiple projections. First, it indicates that Medicare will see the largest increase with costs rising 7.5% annually as the number of enrollees continue to increase and the cost for each goes up significantly. Second, hospital costs will be the fastest area of growth for cost inflation, estimated to be around 8%. And finally, drug costs for the government will rise rapidly in the short term given that Medicare Part D, the drug benefit for seniors, has a maximum annual cost per enrollee of $2,000, and many of the newer drugs, including the entire group of medications recently approved by the FDA for Alzheimer's, cost 10 to 30 times more than this patient maximum. And as a result, worrisome are some of the assumptions in the analysis that might underestimate what's about to happen. As an example, the analysis assumes that the price caps put in place by Congress starting in 2026 will reduce governmental expenditures once it is happening. Given the legal challenges to this drug cost maximum pricing that have already been filed, that program might never get off the ground. As such, rather than seeing a decreased Medicare drug cost, it could rise and total health care expenditures could end up even higher. Similarly, there's an assumption that the delayed care that happened during COVID has already been addressed. United Healthcare, in contrast, last week surprised analysts when it reported an unexpected increase in costs due to a surge in individuals receiving hip and knee joint replacements after they had delayed surgery during COVID. It's just too early to see how much of the residual demand exists and will impact total expenditures in the future. Without any question, we could see a healthcare crisis. In a COVID-specific story, Jeremy, the FDA has moved forward to changing the composition of the vaccine that it recommends 
manufacturers produce. Listeners may remember that the current vaccine is a combination of the original vaccine and mRNA targeted the more recent Omicron strain. However, with the newest subvariant of Omicron, XBB, now driving the majority of infections in the United States, this will be the vaccine's next target. And only mRNA against XBB will be used in the formulation. At this point, when we are recording this program, it's the Friday before the airing, and an expert panel of the FDA has unanimously already approved this approach. And given that this direction was proposed by the FDA staff, it's almost guaranteed that the FDA will give that direction to vaccine manufacturers. But of course, the reality is that the next vaccine is unlikely to make a huge difference in the health of the nation. At this point, only one in five Americans have received an updated booster. Most people don't believe that COVID-19 poses a risk to them. Few individuals are masking. Given that the government won't be continuing to pay for the vaccine shots, and some insurers are planning to charge a co-payment, we can predict that even fewer Americans will roll up their sleeves this fall than the last one. Rabbi, you just mentioned the exorbitant cost of medications. What is happening with the various drugs designed to slow the rate of progression of Alzheimer's? Jeremy, manufacturers are moving forward with obtaining FDA approval for their new medications, despite the major risks involved in their administration. These can include brain swelling, intracranial bleeding, and even death. Positive data was presented to the FDA's advisory committee on one of the newer medications that already has an emergency authorization, and it showed both a slowing of mental deterioration and a reduction in amyloid plaque in the brain. And as a result, we can expect that full authorization by the FDA is coming. Recognizing this high cost for the drugs compared to the relatively small benefit generated, not that it doesn't slow the process down, but the magnitude is not nearly as great as people are hoping. Health and Human Services announced that Medicare will be covering these medications for individuals with early stage dementia. But what it will require is that manufacturers and clinicians enter data into a patient registry even after the medications have received full FDA approval. And this expectation, it's an exception to the carte blanche that Medicare has used for all other drugs. The restriction was severely criticized by Alzheimer advocates. Given the massive risks this medication poses, you might think the more data available, the better it would be for families trying to decide whether to begin the treatment. To me, the resistance is very problematic. We should have scientific data, outcome experience for any medication that is both high risk in terms of complications and very expensive. But people are opposing it. Maybe they're doing so because of the close links of financial dependency advocacy groups have with drug manufacturers. Possibly, it comes from a concern about how this requirement will impact the doctors who prescribe the medications, making their time, their very valuable time, uh, less available to patient care. And conceivably, these advocacy groups simply seem more as better. And as such, the idea that maybe this medication will be found to not be as good as we think, that's something that no one would like to find out. But to me, if a loved one of mine faced the difficult choice of taking one of these drugs, 
I'd want the most scientific and objective data possible. And that doesn't exist today. Having said that, I do believe that Medicare will need to be clear about what means by requiring patient registries to collect data on how the medications are performing. Is this simply asking family members a few subjective questions and inquiring about side effects? Will this require extensive testing and objective measures? And if it's the latter, how extensive will these expectations be? Who's going to pay for the testing that is required? You know, when drugs were relatively inexpensive and the results of giving them remarkable, penicillin being a great example, there was no need to learn more after the medications became publicly available, except for clinicians who had scientific interest. But when a treatment is lifelong and it costs $25,000 to $100,000 per year, and investing a small amount of dollars is relatively minuscule, why not do so in order to better understand optimal clinical practice this seems not just reasonable to me, but Jeremy, I think it's wise. Let me ask you, Jeremy, as a family member, given the uncertainty around efficacy, how would you go about assessing whether to tell a parent or grandparent of yours to take one of the new Alzheimer drugs? And as a family member, how would you feel about the requirement to make data on outcomes a requisite for Medicare reimbursement? Robbie, first off, I think the data on outcomes on any drug should be required to be public and a requirement for Medicare reimbursement. Um, as far as whether or not uh, to have a family member take a new drug with uncertain or low chance of the desired outcome, it's tough. I mean, if I saw a family member struggling with severe Alzheimer's, I may be willing to do any sort of Hail Mary medication with the hopes that it would work. I think most in this situation would do the same thing. Uh, that being said, I think drug manufacturers know the desperation that many in this situation will feel and thus might take advantage of it in bad faith for high profits. Drug companies have a negative image in the public eye for a reason. I mean, look no further than what they've done with the price of insulin over the years. Robbie, you mentioned the vaccine made available this fall will be different from the one currently being used. I'm sure listeners will be interested to understand how effective the current one is. What's the most recent data? Jeremy, I was intrigued by a study that was published recently in a journal called Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report. In it, they looked at the efficacy of the current vaccine. It's a long report with a lot of information, but there were three very interesting pieces of data relative to your question. And they show how complex answering these queries can be. The first piece of data is that somewhere between 96 and 90% of Americans have acquired protection against severe COVID-19 infection. About a quarter of the population is immune, secondary to having been infected, about a quarter from the vaccine alone, and about half of Americans by infection plus vaccine. You may remember before we realized just how contagious this virus was, we talked on the show many times about herd immunity. And based upon other diseases, it was estimated at the time that it would take about 80% of the population to become exposed either by infection or by vaccine to have this very virulent virus stopping the threat that it was. Although we underestimated the percentage of the population that needed to have immunity, in essence, this 96, 97% protection level achieves that outcome. And I think it explains 
why COVID-19 has receded so significantly this year. The second important piece of data in the report is that people who have received the current vaccine, they have a significantly lower chance of needing hospitalization than individuals who haven't been vaccinated. Of course, we don't know how many of those individuals have had an infection, and if they have, then they would have immunity in addition to um, if they were vaccinated uh, alone. But the third and important piece of data is how rapidly circulating antibodies disappear from people's blood, either after vaccination or after infection. This information indicates that, that the time since prior vaccination may be very important. And by that, I don't mean in terms of years, I mean in terms of months. What we see by analyzing people's blood is that the added protection by the current bivalent vaccine, it begins to wane significantly a mere two months after vaccination. And the protection that it gives is almost no more or is minimally more after four months than the original vaccine that was given relative to the need for hospitalization. One question this research can't answer that many people would like to know is the relative efficacy of the vaccination versus becoming infected, which is better at generating antibodies. We, do, we can't say one versus the other. But for people worried about becoming sick in the future, even if the two ways are relatively equal in effectiveness, individuals who are worried might consider that it's highly unlikely that outside of maybe a sore arm for a day or two, that they will suffer complications from the vaccine, while infection can result in days of fever and discomfort and even severe illness. As such, a booster would be a safer choice for people wanting added protection. This research says that it, they may have to receive it, however, more frequently than we're currently believing. Currently, we're thinking about once a year added booster shots, and it may have to be more often in patients at high risk. Robbie, anything more relative to COVID-19? Jeremy, as you know, one of the most baffling and frustrating consequences of this coronavirus is long COVID. A new study from the Journal of the American Medical Association looked at data on this problem early in the pandemic and more recently. The researchers found that only about 10% of individuals infected with the current Omicron strain developed long COVID six months after infection. That's a much lower percentage. We've talked on the show many times that the CDC estimated the problem of getting long COVID was somewhere around 20%. And a British study found it to be as high as 30%. The, the symptoms the researchers used to define long COVID were multiple. Fatigue, brain fog, dizziness, stomach upset, heart palpitations, sexual difficulties, loss of smell, loss of taste, chronic coughing, chest pain, abnormal movements. These are a broad range and probably include most of the people who have long COVID. Based on the study we just discussed, it's unclear to me whether the reduced incidence of long COVID today reflects a reduced ability of the current Omicron variant to produce these long-term symptoms, or the high level of antibody protection that we just discussed in the general population, or maybe just the increased transmissibility of the virus. If that's the case, what would happen is that more people would become infected who had protection, and we know that the protection helps also block long COVID from developing, 
And as such, we could see a lower incidence of long COVID afterwards, having nothing to do with the specificity of the virus, but solely related to the immunology and immunologic protection people have acquired so broadly, both from vaccination and from prior infection. Speaking about long COVID, Jeremy, how worried do you think the average American is about this problem? And is there any way to convince them that this threat is great enough that they should get vaccinated and boosted as a means of reducing their exposure and risk? Robbie, I think most of Americans are over COVID and kind of put it in the rearview mirror. Uh, most Americans I know that did receive the vaccine and still got COVID are frustrated that they were told early on that it would prevent them from getting COVID and then they still got it. Uh, most healthy young Americans I know that did get it even before the vaccine got nothing more than the equivalent of a serious flu for a few days. Uh, I think seniors and those at higher risk will continue to get boosted, but I think that most Americans have uh, lost faith in the effectiveness of the vaccines and were frustrated about it not lasting as long as they had hoped. Uh, most people were tired of hearing that, oh, even though you got boosted a few months ago, it's time for another better one and will likely not worry about getting boosted. I think of it similarly to how many people actually get the yearly flu shot. Sure, many will still continue to get them, but I'm guessing it'll be a small percentage of the population and many of them will likely only get it if they happen to be at their doctor's office and get a reminder similar to a yearly flu shot. You pointed out how often medications are hyped when they in fact offer little real long-lasting benefit. A listener said that she's heard there's a new drug for patients with lung cancer. What can you tell her? Jeremy, this medication, osimertinib, taken once a day, does provide added hope for individuals with a specific type of lung cancer. This is data from the most recent American Society of Clinical Oncology's meeting. It came from researchers at Yale, and they presented the data which showed that in properly selected patients, the drug diminished the chances of patients dying in half. The clinical trial included patients aged 30 to 86 and included individuals from 26 countries. All had what's called non-small cell lung cancer. And they not only had this particular cancer, but it had a particular specific gene mutation against which the drug was targeted. This genetic mutation is present in about a quarter of patients with non-small cell lung cancer. But this particular type of cancer with the genetic mutation accounts for as many as 40% of lung cancer cases in Asia. Assuming these results hold, the medication would be extremely effective, and it would imply that everyone with lung cancer should be tested for this particular gene and those with it treated with the drug. The actual numbers are that for patients who've had all the tumor removed surgically, at five years, 88% of them were still alive versus only 78% for patients who had a similar operation but didn't receive the medication. Diseases for which there's a genetic marker in the cancer cells, one which isn't present in normal human cells, these are susceptible targets for modern immunologic therapies and holds promise for the future. Robbie, any other positive clinical news? Yes, Jeremy. Here are two recent positive findings. First, researchers of rectal cancer treatment have demonstrated that patients do just as well without radiation therapy after surgery as with it. And for many of the 47,000 individuals who develop this particular cancer each year, 
The sequelae after radiation therapy is one of the most painful and problematic aspects of the treatment. This study shows that adding radiation therapy after surgery, which theoretically was given to eradicate any remaining cells that the surgeon might have missed, it didn't reduce deaths or disease recurrence five years after diagnosis. When it comes to treating cancer, doctors have historically had the bias that more is always better. Studies like this, which disprove that assumption, are encouraging. And I'd like to commend the researchers from the highly respected Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center for their work. Second, the new obesity medications developed to facilitate weight loss also have been shown to reduce the risk of patients experiencing a heart attack or stroke over the next 10 years. This work was preliminary, since the drug has only been on the market for a relatively short amount of time. The conclusions were presented at the European Congress on Obesity, and they used the American College of Cardiology tool to predict future disease based on measures like blood pressure and cholesterol levels. Whether the improvements seen after administration of the drug came from the medications themselves or from the reduction in weight, that's not clear, but the positive results were significant. As always, I'm interested in any updates on medical treatment relative to kids, Robbie. What's new? Jeremy, the data on mental health issues among kids continues to be very worrisome and problematic. The newest data show that suicides across the U.S. have reached an all-time high and that they now exceed homicides. The death rate is currently 11 youths a year take their lives for every 10,000 individuals of similar age. Moreover, surveys have confirmed that accessing mental health assistance has become difficult, even for people with excellent health insurance. And for youths, this is particularly problematic since they don't want their parents to know about the difficulties they're having. When asked about their personal experience, 45% of adults said that the mental health they had was only fair or often poor and that the mental health services they received were poor or only fair. And one in five in this at-risk category, these are individuals who say their mental health is not particularly great. They reported the mental health services they sought wasn't even available through their insurance. We can assume that if adults are having this much difficulty, kids and teenagers who struggle with depression would routinely find it hard to get the assistance they desire and need. On the positive side, an FDA panel did approve a monoclonal antibody shot against RSV, respiratory syncytial virus, for infants and toddlers at risk. As you might remember from a previous Medicine the Truth podcast, RSV leads to 80,000 kids under the age of five having to be hospitalized each year, and it results in approximately 300 deaths annually. This new injected medication reduces the risk of severe disease by 80%. Across the United States, RSV kills about 10,000 adults each year, and it results in hospitalization for 160,000 individuals. Vaccination for adults has already been approved by the FDA. Robbie, our next season of Fixing Healthcare will explore end-of-life medical care. What are your thoughts? Jeremy, I think we do a terrible job. As a medical professional, we've become experts at avoiding death very poor at educating patients and giving them the power to decide when life is no longer worth living. We can keep people alive now on breathing machines and tubes, feeding them through catheters in their stomach and sticking and poking them across the day and night, 
until this line between treatment and torture completely blurs. But at the same time, we struggle to offer compassionate care, which is what patients want. A study from JAMA Open Network demonstrated that in states that mandated telling patients about their actual clinical circumstances and offering them end-of-life palliative care options, that the majority chose to die in the comfort of their home or to be enrolled in hospice care rather than stay in a hospital bed and receive further aggressive treatment. The data confirmed that most people don't want to die in a hospital, and yet that's what happens most often in the United States. Of interest when patients choose palliative care rather than intensive inpatient care, not only is the quality of their life better, they actually live longer. And for patients with other serious illnesses besides cancer, the likelihood they would choose to complete their lives with family and friends outside of a hospital rose from 6% to 18% in those states that required this information to be provided, whereas in the states where it wasn't mandated, the numbers did not change. Robbie, I know you were planning on writing about the new drugs like Ozempic used by a growing number of people to address obesity, but how do doctors define obesity? Jeremy, this is a great question. Our understanding and even definition of obesity is in the process of change. As an example, last week, the American Medical Association at its yearly meeting passed a recommendation to reduce reliance on what's called BMI, the body mass index. This measures the ratio of height to weight. And the higher the number, the more likely it is that a person's weight is excessive. But there are numerous drawbacks, including failing to include variation in body shape across racial and ethnic groups. This happens when doctors rely solely on the BMI to define the five levels of weight, normal, overweight, underweight, obesity, and morbid obesity. Rather than relying on a single measure, the AMA members voted to adopt a policy which recommended BMI as but one measure to consider. In addition to that, they suggested that physicians analyze body composition, measure weight circumference, belly fat, and genetic factors. The AMA noted that the BMI categories were derived almost exclusively from white individuals and that, quote, an overemphasis of bodily thinness is as deleterious to one's physical and mental health as obesity. You mentioned earlier that groups have challenged the legislation passed by Congress that will allow the federal government to negotiate prices for a limited number of drugs. Can you provide some details? Jeremy, there have now been three lawsuits brought against the federal government, one by drug manufacturer Merck, a second by the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, and most recently, a third one by Pharma, the drug industry lobbying organization. Each claim that giving the government the power to negotiate prices violates the drug manufacturer's due process because it would not only permit the government to dictate maximum prices, but it also would unilaterally impose fines for companies that refuse to accept these governmentally imposed price ceilings. All lawsuits claim this legislation would result in drug companies cutting back in R&D of new drugs, causing harm to Americans and their health. None of the suits, of course, mentioned that most analysts think that the impact on R&D would be minimal, affecting at most 1% of new drugs. Moreover, none noted the high percentage of Americans who failed to renew prescriptions or cut back on the recommended doses due to the inability to afford 
afford the exorbitant prices the pharmaceutical industry places on medications and not acknowledge that the U.S. is one of the only countries in the world which the government is prohibited from negotiating on behalf of the citizens. And as a result, our nation pays nearly double what people in every other country pay for the exact same medications. It's expected that these lawsuits will be resolved by the time the legislation is scheduled to go into effect in 2026. But as we've noted on this podcast before, the process even at that time is scheduled to be limited to only 10 of the most costly drugs in year one. Under the Affordable Care Act, all insurers had to cover preventative services at no cost. We mentioned on a previous episode of Medicine the Truth that a Texas judge had overturned that requirement. What happened on appeal? Jeremy, as you indicate, the ruling was appealed. The Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals temporarily stayed the district court's ruling, the one that, to which you're referring. And that decision, keeping the original scope in place, not only applies to the types of preventive services that most people need, but also to the medication PrEP, the drug that is given to people at higher risk of contracting HIV through sexual contact. As part of the ruling, the appeals court asked the Biden administration, which defended the ACA law, and the Texas businesses and residents who asked that it be ruled unconstitutional, to reach a temporary compromise while the final decision was being adjudicated. The agreement reached would leave the law intact, but it would exempt small businesses and the plaintiffs bringing the suit from having to purchase a plan without this breadth of coverage. That's assuming that there's an option in the same area that includes an insurance plan with all the preventive services included, and that would be available to both companies and individuals. The mandate for preventive services at no cost, it's very popular amongst patients. 62% of Americans support the requirement, and it's led to higher levels of healthcare screening in areas that have the potential to reduce heart attacks, strokes, and cancer. Whether the litigants brought the suit due to the added financial cost of the coverage to employers and individuals, or whether it was the impact it has for people at risk to contract AIDS, or simply at a political disagreement with the so-called Obamacare plan, that's all uncertain. But the reality is, that since after the initial district court ruling, most insurance companies committed to continuing covering preventive health care services in 2023, this stay is unlikely to make a major difference for most Americans. The final appeals court decision is likely to be handed down later this year, and that could impact insurance plans in 2024. Robbie, a listener wanted to know how much it costs to deliver a baby in the United States. What can you tell her? Jeremy, the listener's question is very important for parents planning to have a child, since the total dollars may be much higher than most families realize. And the variation by state is massive. Across the U.S., on average, it costs about $13,000 to deliver a child in a hospital. But in Alaska, it's over $21,000. Alabama, it's less than $8,000, almost a third of the price of Alaska. And these prices are for vaginal delivery. For women who require cesarean section, they rise 20 to 30%. Having a child is not only expensive once the child's born, but it's expensive the birth process itself. Let me ask you, Jeremy, as a patient, if you knew the price of care at different hospitals, would you make 
choices of where to get the care provided for elective and routine inpatient procedures based upon this? Absolutely. I think price transparency is one of the biggest issues in American healthcare. Uh, if I have the option of getting care at three different places and the information was much more easily accessible publicly, I would totally do my homework on which place I should go. Similarly to buying a new car. Sure, some of the nicer ones might cost more, but the cheapest one will still get me from point A to point B. But at the same time, might not have all the safety features or bells and whistles I'm looking for. I would want to find out one that is the right mix of cost and outcomes, reputation and experiments. That's what I'm looking for. Robbie, any final thoughts? Jeremy, I'm struck by how often we talk about primary care and how little we do as a nation to support practitioners. The data say that adding 10 primary care doctors to a community increases life expectancy twice as much as adding 10 specialists, and yet we continue to train more specialists than our nation needs and far too few primary care doctors. We know that primary care can reduce the frequency by which patients experience heart attacks, strokes, cancer, and yet we pay two to three times more to the doctors who treat and reverse these complications from chronic disease rather than the physicians who prevent these problems in the first place. And the list of misallocations of resources and the lack of appropriate recognition for primary care contributes, not only persists, but it's growing. Medicare is about to experiment with a variety of approaches to address this problem. As a component of the various initiatives, they're looking to try to pay primary care physicians for a variety of functions, including coordinating the patient's care with specialists, helping patients access social services in the community, and addressing individuals' mental health needs. I applaud anything the government does that makes practicing primary care easier and more fulfilling. But I think these programs miss the big picture. Assuming the federal actuaries are right, and healthcare costs will be over $7 trillion in a mere seven more years, I think healthcare disaster is likely to result. By the time you include paying the growing interest on the current national debt and realize how much of the cost of hospitalization for Medicare and Medicaid recipients has already been cost shifted to private payers and employers, the logical conclusion is that we're running down a dead end with the wall ahead of us, and it's already visible, and yet we continue to run forward And yet we continue to run forward at breakneck speed. Jeremy, you've asked me multiple times why progress in transforming healthcare has been snail-paced. I believe there are two answers. The first one, and I know many of the guests on Fixing Healthcare have talked about it, is that the legacy players, by that I mean hospitals, doctors, insurers, drug companies, they're doing so well, they don't want to change. But at least when it comes to providers, I'm evolving my thinking. If hospitals are doing so well, why are so many of them losing money in operations and facing an ever more uphill climb in the future? And if doctors are doing so well, why is burnout over 60%? And why are so many physicians selling their practices to work for hospitals, insurers, and private equity? When I look at where the opportunities are to drive performance upward without destroying the people doing the work, I believe they reside in groups of clinicians working together as one. And if they're going to focus on avoiding and preventing diseases and using technology to make care more convenient for patients, they'll need to financially benefit. Pay for value only works if achieving it is possible and success doesn't harm providers financially. 
And I don't see any way for that to happen when physicians work alone or in very small groups and they're paid on a fee-for-service basis. I think the time has come to recognize that the best patient care requires groups of clinicians, ones who share a common medical record and work together as one. The group can start with, a, with primary care physicians alone and evolve over time to a multi-specialty medical group, or it can begin with an organized medical group, which is paid on a fully capitated basis. But when doctors work alone, they don't have the resources to accept risk or the option to drive superior clinical outcomes. This approach worked when medical care was less sophisticated, less expensive, and less harried, but doesn't work today. Jeremy, in medieval times, people could do excellent work scattered across the countryside in their own homes. When the demands for greater productivity grew beyond what a cottage industry could provide, that world disappeared. But the medical groups of the future are virtual, connected with a common EHR and leadership structure, or whether all the physicians work in a single building, that's not the most important issue. It's a greater efficiency in clinical care and the ability to leverage technology are dependent on system thinking, effective coordination of medical practice, and the ability to drive operational improvement with excellent leadership. I can't think of a single industry that's been able to address the challenges of the 21st century without coordination of effort, sophisticated leadership, and aligned financial incentives. Why do we believe healthcare, with its projected $7.1 trillion price tag, will be any different? It's not. And the sooner we recognize this, the sooner we create high-performing groups of clinicians, the sooner positive change will happen. I look forward to that day, and I encourage listeners in the healthcare sphere to look for partners with whom they can work, clinical partners, hospital partners, nursing partners, partners with everyone committed to the same thing, wanting to see the best outcomes for patients, being able to prevent disease and to avoid complications from chronic illness. Individuals committed to making American medicine once again the best in the world. As a reminder to listeners, this episode is available on our website, FixingHealthCarePodcast.com, and on all podcast apps, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and share it with your friends and family. To submit a question or comment to the host, please visit the contact page on our website or send us a message on Twitter, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Thank you for listening and have a great day.